Kathy. Just uh, a little clarification on the 24th. On Christmas Eve, we will be here that morning as well. We'll have a regular, so the the Christmas Eve is actually a Sunday this year, and we will have our regular Sunday worship services in the morning at 10 o'clock right here in this building. And then also, if you'd like to join in, uh, Christ Church in San Antonio has invited us to come and be with them that evening as well, where Kathy uh, announced. Well, we are in the second week of, uh, of an Advent series that we're calling The Surprising Branches of God's Family Tree. Uh, we open up to Matthew chapter 1, and if you've got a Bible, you can, you can read it with me. And we see the genealogy, the family tree, the family history of Jesus. Matthew opens up his gospel proclaiming Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah, the king who's come in the line of David, and he traces that line all the way back from Jesus to Abraham. And this is what he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, who we talked about last week, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, who we will talk about this week. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Matthew actually goes on to list five women in this genealogy. Now, if you were a genealogist of that day, of Matthew's day, it would have been very, very rare for you to list women in a genealogy, especially a genealogy announcing a king. But Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lists not one, but five And boy, are these women doozies. These are not necessarily the women that you might collect to say, let me tell you about all of your great, 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 great grandmothers and how amazingly special they were. Because amongst these five, four of them were foreigners, Gentiles. Uh, Three of them had, four of them actually had some sort of sexual scandal in their life. Uh, Two of them suffered some sort of pretty hefty abuse. And one was an unwed teen mother. Right? This is not the collection of southern bells that we probably, if we could choose our own genealogists, would we be writing into our own stories. But the only person who's ever been born that could choose his own family tree chose these five women. And we're going to look at the second of those women today, a woman whose name is Rahab. So flip with me, if you will, back in the Old Testament to Joshua chapter 2. While you're getting there... Uh, Joshua's right after Deuteronomy. I'll catch us up on the story of God's people so far. They have been in slavery for 500 years in Egypt, the most powerful land in the world at that time. And God has come and he's rescued them out of slavery. He's, he's inflicted these amazing plagues on the Egyptians and he's pulled them out of Pharaoh's hand. He's brought them across the Red Sea on dry land and through this wilderness and desert area. He's, he's, um, any kind of king or other nation that would rise up against God's people, God has, has quelched it very quickly. And he's brought them then to the precipice of the land of Canaan, which he has promised to give them. The land where Abraham, their forefather, used to be and is now inhabited by the Canaanites. And God is about to conquer this land and give it to his people. And that's where we open up in Joshua chapter 2. So here now, the word of the Lord from Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. 
And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you and who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and she'd hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof, and she hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on their way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the kings, to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord our God, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear by me, or excuse me, swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and you will give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Let's stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this story of Rahab, a woman who probably to some of us seems... uh, very different, very foreign, and probably to some others of us, uh, seems like uh, her life really resonates with ours, and we can identify. Lord, wherever we have come from this morning, uh, whichever way that we have come, uh, Lord, some very eager and willing and wanting to hear your word, and some not sure even what to think. Lord, we pray that you would draw us in to your word now and speak to our hearts, that we might see Jesus and see him clearly. We pray in his name. Amen. One of our Christmas traditions uh, is that we like to decorate our tree with ornaments, like most of you do. And probably like most of you as well, we we have a lot of ornaments that we've collected over the years. And as we put those ornaments up on the tree, uh, we get to remember and recall the stories that go along with those ornaments. And so we get to say, oh, you know, you made this when you were five. You remember that? Or that was mom's or dad's when they were a little kid. Or we got that in that great store in in Austin. And we get to kind of recall these great stories that we are decorating our tree and our house. Well, one of those stories actually happened to us a few weeks ago. We had some friends over. We were watching football. We were eating food. Everything was fine. And then in the middle of all of it, Virginia and Kiki Culpepper announced, I think something just ran into our house. And so we started to look around in our house, and, and they said, I think it went into your office, Dad. And, and all of us, really, the whole, the whole crowd that was gathered there started to move into our office, my office, and sure enough, there's, there's a little gray tail sticking out from underneath my bookshelf. There's a mouse in my office. So the first thing we did was we called our dog in, thinking, oh, he'll, he'll take care of the mouse. He, he wanted nothing to do with it, and he just left. 
So, so we were all just left trying to figure out how do we get this mouse out of my office? And we had, you know, grown men in there with work gloves trying to catch a mouse. I mean, it was like this comedy of errors on Christmas vacation kind of, you know, epic proportions. And finally, we figured out how to get the mouse out of my office and into the laundry room. And then finally, uh, finally out of the house, although, um, in the midst of it all, uh, this poor mouse gave his life. Uh, so it was really kind of a tragic and crazy and, and beautiful night. Well, about a week later or so, uh, Randy and Rachel Smith pulled me aside and said, hey, we have a Christmas present for you. And they brought it out, and it was a Christmas ornament of a little gray mouse. And so we got to hang that mouse on our tree and remember this great story of the mouse that had gotten loose in our house. Okay, here's my point in this. When God decorates his family tree, he decorates it with the stories of people like Rahab... And people like Tamar and all of these women that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. He decorates his family tree with these amazing stories and sometimes, very oftentimes, uh, surprising stories. And the question really for us is, are we decorating the walls of our church with the same kind of stories? Are we decorating our church with the stories of people like Rahab? Are we proclaiming those kind of stories, welcoming them in, and being able to say, this is what we proclaim in this church, the story of somebody who was an outsider, somebody who was uh, a very outward sinner, and who has come and given this beautiful profession of faith. See, Rahab is really a fascinating character. She is, as we open up the story, we find out two, two important things about her right off the bat. The first is that she's a Canaanite. So remember, God's people had been brought out of Egypt. They'd been brought into this land of Canaan where people already lived, Canaanites, and Rahab was one of them. Now, we are told uh, in the Bible actually over and over that the Canaanites were a very wicked people, that they were, uh, their practices were detestable to the Lord. Uh, their, their religious practices involved uh, multiple gods and oftentimes sacrifices that would even include their own children. This is really a despicable people by any account at any time in the world. Almost everybody would say this is a tremendously immoral people. Well, God has brought his people in then to take this land. And it's really important that we remember that about the Canaanites. Because God tells his people in Deuteronomy, he says, listen, you're going to get into this land and you're going to think, oh, it's because we were so righteous that God gave us this land. It's because we were so great. Everything about us was so wonderful that God moved everybody else out and gave us the land and it was great. And God says, no, that's not it. I'm bringing judgment upon the Canaanites because of their sin, because of their wickedness. I'm giving you the land because I am loving and kind, because I love you. It's not because you deserve it. It's not really because at your hearts you're much better. It's that they are wicked and sinful, and I'm bringing judgment upon them, and I'm giving you this place because I love you. Okay, so we need to understand that as an underlying fact about the Canaanites. In fact, let's take a little excursus. We're going to, let's get in the car. We're going to go away from the sermon for just a second because I want to explain this really quickly. When you come to places in the Bible, like Joshua, and you see God proclaiming judgment on people, and you see God actually telling his people to come in and take over land and even sometimes to kill the inhabitants of that land, that can be very unsettling. That's okay. It's okay if that is unsettling to you. Very oftentimes you will open up the Old Testament especially and you will see God proclaiming judgment, looking down and saying, "Um, I don't like this. 
This looks terrible and wicked. And these are people who are not living in the freedom that they were supposed to live in humanity, but are binding themselves with sin and binding each other. Now, overwhelmingly, God actually says those things to his own people. But this is a case of him saying it even to the nations around. So when you come to those places in the Bible, it can sometimes be confusing and you think, why, why is this? Why does God seem to be so judgmental? Why is God proclaiming this judgment on this people? When you have that question, Rahab is the answer to that question. Because Rahab actually does what is supposed to happen every time God comes and proclaims judgment. When God comes and proclaims judgment, what is supposed to happen is that people are supposed to act like Rahab and say, I know what's happening and I'm turning to the Lord rather than against him. So just tuck that back away in the back of your heads for just a little bit. All right, let's come back then to the second thing about Rahab. The first thing we learned is that she's a Canaanite, which means she's an outsider. She is outside of God's people. She is one who would have been uh, thought by the people of God and by herself as being an outsider. That's the first thing. The second thing is that she also is a woman who is carrying quite a bit of shame. She is told, we're told right from the bat, she's a prostitute. And she is called that actually other times that she's mentioned in the Bible as well, which there are multiple times that Rahab is mentioned in the Bible. And most of those times she's called Rahab the harlot. So we, we come right out of the bat saying this is who she is. This was her profession. This is in many ways her identity. Now, it, it is a little confusing when you read this text um, to know, you know what's, going, what's going on with these spies. Why do we meet a prostitute the first thing when they come into the city? Well, actually, the writer does, um, he, he goes to some length to, to not show that they're there to take advantage of Rahab and her services, but they're actually there to stay the night. So probably the place that she lived and owned, this, this house that she has, is probably a public place, more like an inn or a hostel, uh, where people would come and they'd gather and there would be food that could be prepared and there would be conversation, it was more like a pub, uh, but there would be a place to stay as well, and so you could stay overnight. Now... Let's not uh, ignore also what, what is obvious is that she is a prostitute. The owner of this inn, this hostel, is a prostitute. So my guess is there's other business going on there as well. In fact, it gives you a little bit of a clue as to the culture of Canaan that all of these things are just mixed together. So that's who we are here when we're introduced to Rahab. That's who we see. An outsider, prostitute. One who is carrying her own shame and one who is outside of God's people. Now, if we stopped right there, uh, there, is little, there is little reason for her to be included in any of our conversations, and especially for her to show up thousands of years later in the New Testament. There would not have been, you know, Hebrew mothers gathering their children on their knee and saying, let me tell you about the story of your great-great-grandmother Rahab, the prostitute, right? That probably wasn't going to happen. So what separates her and why we actually proclaim her throughout the Bible, she's mentioned and exemplified in the book of Hebrews. She's mentioned and exemplified in the book of James. She's now included here in Matthew's genealogy. And the reason is because she has one of the clearest and most beautiful professions of faith in the entire Bible. In fact, the profession of faith that Rahab gives is a model of what it looks like to come to Jesus in faith. For any of God's people, and for us today. So we're going to spend the rest of our time, short time here today, uh, breaking down her profession of faith. It really happens in three parts. 
She proclaims that she understands her situation. She proclaims that she knows who God is. And then she comes to Jesus rather than away from him. And this really is the model of faith for all of us. So let's start to break those down. The first thing that Rahab says when we open up this story is that she says that she knows her situation. Look at verse 9. I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. She very clearly says, I know who I am. I know who I am. I'm a Canaanite. I'm a Canaanite prostitute. I am numbered amongst the people that know what the Lord is doing, that he's come here actually to give you this land and to take us out, to pronounce judgment upon us. Rahab has looked in the mirror clearly and she has said, I understand my situation. Friends, that is the key, really the foundation for what it means to come to Jesus in faith. The first thing that we have to do is to be able to look at ourselves and say, I understand who I am. I have looked deeply into myself and I have found myself lacking. I know the situation, and I know that as I stand before the Lord, there is something that needs to change. Because I am not who I would like to be, and I am certainly not who I need to be. Rahab understands that, and she proclaims that as a wonderful example for us of the first step of what it means to come to the Lord in faith. Here's the second piece. Not only does she need to know herself, but she knows who God is. She knows who God is both in his actions and what he has done and proclaimed himself to be and in his identity. Look uh, at the following verses, verses 10 and 11. For we, the Canaanites, have heard of how the Lord Yahweh, God's personal name there that's translated Lord for us in English. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And then she goes on to say this. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. There's two really important things going on here. First of all, she says, I understand what God has done. I know, I've heard. News travels fast here. We've heard of what happened in Egypt. We've heard of how the Lord brought plagues on Egypt, how he parted the Red Sea and brought you through down on dry land. We've heard of what God has done to anybody who's risen up against him. We know that. We know the facts and we have seen the power of God. So she proclaims that she knows the power of God. But this is pretty amazing too. She proclaims that she knows who God is in his unique identity. She says, I know that he is God of heaven and God of earth. Now, the reason that's remarkable for someone like Rahab to say that is she lived in a polytheistic culture. She lived in a culture where there were lots of gods, where there were gods of heaven and there were gods of earth. There were gods of the stars and the moon and the sun. And then there were gods, you know, of the harvest and of fruitfulness and of the rivers and of uh, the crops and those sort of things. There are lots of gods. And whatever you felt like was lacking in your life, you could just approach that little god and tell him what your need was. But what Rahab is saying here is she's saying, I acknowledge and I confess that this God, Yahweh, is the one God who is the God of heaven and the God of earth. He is the God who is over and above all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the one who has the power to conquer all of these lands. And he is the one who has the unique identity as the one and only God. 
Friends, that's got to be the second piece of our confession. If we are going to come to Jesus in faith, that has got to be the second piece. That we know who the Lord is. That we open up his word and we actually see what he's done. What he has proclaimed himself to be. His great acts of redemption. We get to see those and claim them. And then we also get to proclaim that God is actually Lord above all. Even the idols that we bring about in our own lives. The things that we turn to to make us feel like we're fulfilled. Things like money or power or sex or uh, ease or any of those things that make us feel like we have some sort of fulfillment or significance in the world. The second big piece to our proclamation of who Jesus is is to say, he's above all of this. We know who we are and we know who God is. Here's the third part. Not only does she know who she is in her own situation, not only does she know who God is in both his activity and his identity, but here's the really key point, is that in the midst of that, in the knowledge of both of those things, she turns to him in her need. So you could go a couple of different ways. You could know who you are and who God is and easily turn away. To say, well, either I know who God is, and I know who I am, and so therefore there's no hope for me. So I turn to despair, or I turn to cynicism, or I turn to just running away from the truth and not wanting to pay any attention to those things because it's just a little too painful for me. Or you can turn to hunkering down and picking up your weapons and preparing for battle, like the rest of the Canaanites did. See, they knew those things too. She says we, meaning all the Canaanites, we know what God's come to do, and we've seen what he can do. And you know what everybody else did? They grabbed a weapon and they decided to hunker down and fight. We could do the same thing too. To say, well, I will pull up the weapon of my own self-righteousness and I will start listing all of the great things that I've done in my life and that will kind of be my defense against these other two things that I know. Or I will pull in this weapon uh, that I have of, of my own just ability to check out and, and project something uh, in my life to hope actually to pull the wool over everybody's eyes so maybe they'll think that I'm something that I'm not. We could pull out that weapon as well. But that is not what Rahab does. What Rahab does is such a wonderful example for us is that she actually turns to the Lord. She says, okay, I know these things and now here's what I want to do. Will you take me in? Will you take not only me, but my father's house, my brothers and sisters, all of us? Will, can we become one of you? She is asking, actually, to stop being a Canaanite and to start being one of God's people. And these spies, to their credit, say, absolutely. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with... This woman, this Canaanite woman, this Canaanite prostitute who has this incredible example of a profession of faith. Well, I think there's maybe three different groups of us here this morning. And so I'm going to speak to to all three of us in the different ways that we can identify. Because I think some probably, some of us come and we identify with Rahab and her shame. And we say, you know, my past or my present, my thoughts, my actions, my lifestyle, whatever it is has given me so much shame that I carry in here with me that it's so hard for me even to bear. Maybe that shame was given to you by someone else. And you can identify with Rahab in her shame. Well, let me just say, uh, what the Lord is calling you to today, I think, is to also identify with her in her profession of faith. To follow her example of one who knows who she is, who proclaims who God is, and who comes and moves toward him. 
Come and move toward the Lord. He delights in forgiving sinners. He delights in actually taking our shame and in loving us. Here's a second group of people that may feel like they can identify with Rahab because she's an outsider. And you feel like an outsider. Whether that's uh, just in the regular course of life, uh, where you feel like you're that square peg in the round hole of your community, or the life around you, or your workplace, or whether that's church. And when you walk in, you just don't feel comfortable. Or you've stayed away because you feel like you're an outsider. Let me also just recommend and, uh, that you follow Rahab's example. That you look to her as one who is an example of an outsider who has come to Jesus and who has been granted wonderful access. Here's a third group, I think, is those of us who may not feel as much like we identify with Rahab, but who desire to see people like Rahab come into our church. Let me just ask this question. What are we doing What are we praying for? What kind of culture are we building that enables stories like Rahab's to be prevalent in our church? Where the walls of our church can be decorated with those kind of stories. Are we praying for those things? Are we inviting those people in? Are we welcoming them in? Let me just say that by and large, we are. I think you guys do a fabulous job of creating a culture of welcome here. But... If we are going to be a church that proclaims the gospel, then we have to be a church also that proclaims the welcome of Jesus to the outsider, to the one who is feeling the shame of who they are, and welcomes them in that they might hear the good news. See, Rahab is an example for us of faith, but she's not the end example. She's the forerunner. She's the one who is in that family tree that leads up to the great king of all kings. And the one who has actually come to not only just be our example, but to fulfill it. The one who was the ultimate insider. Jesus created the world. He is the owner of all things. He's in perfect union and community and the Trinity. And he actually left his insider status to become an outsider like us. That's what the incarnation is all about. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. It's not about uh, sentimentality and how nice it is to give gifts or about, you know, the beauty of like the snow that we had the other night, which was super cool, by the way. Uh, But it's really about the amazing thing that God has done, that he has made himself an outsider, that he might take on our form, that he might take on human flesh and become one of us. And he's made himself an outsider that he might take on our shame, that he might carry it. That he might bear it in his life and in his death. That he might take it for us so that we might give him our shame. So that he might move toward us in faithfulness and call us to respond to him in faith. That is the story that is underlying all of this. That Jesus has done something for us that we cannot do on our own. And that is the story that needs to decorate our walls So that the stories like Rahab's would be proclaimed in here uh, all the time. Let's pray that the Lord would do that in us even now. Lord, we thank you for the story of Rahab. And we thank you for the ways that you used her. We thank you that we can open up your word and see thousands of years later in the New Testament you proclaiming her name. This outsider. This shameful woman in many ways who didn't spend a year studying theology or spend a year preparing to give a profession, 
but simply moved by the Holy Spirit, saw who she was, saw more clearly who you are, saw her need and then came to see that need met in your mercy. Lord, we pray that that would drive all that we do here. That seeing who you are and seeing our need, Lord, that we might be proclaiming your love and your mercy. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.